Good evening, everyone. Might as well get started pretty soon. Uh, welcome to Sake Industry News Instagram Live. It's the first one we've done. We would like to try and make it a regular occurrence, <clears throat> but we'll just have to see how everything flows. So thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. I'll give everybody a couple of minutes to join before we actually start in with the questions that I wanted to ask. Um, as everybody joins, in order to pass some time and throw out some interesting conversation, just to let everybody know where I'm at, I'm actually just outside of Cleveland, Ohio now. Uh, I had my typically insanely busy January and February in Japan running a couple of courses and doing a bunch of stuff, and I got around to a lot of breweries this year. But the COVID-19 thing was in the back of my mind, but it didn't really come to the forefront until early March. Uh, I wrapped everything out, kind of rushed out of there as quickly as I could on uh, March 7th, I believe. Um, and I was quite nervous coming over, but nobody asked me any questions. Set that point aside. And I got into Cleveland, Ohio on the evening of March 7th, and I ain't going anywhere in the near future. So I did get here. I am safe. I am healthy. I am with my family. Uh, there's plenty of work to do, uh, so I've got no shortage of that to do either. Um, but, um, yeah, everything's safe. I'm just kind of sheltering in place here just outside of Cleveland. Uh, I got nowhere to go, so I'm cranking out some writing. I'm trying to put together a series of sake education videos, but in spite of having a degree in electrical engineering, I'm proving to be quite the troglodyte, <laughs> and that's going to take uh, some more time, but I'll keep everybody posted on how that progresses uh, as well. Uh, tonight, just to, know how, let's just to let everybody know how this is going to unfold, um, I do have a handful of questions that will probably take some time to answer, uh, and I'll go through those, stuff that I got in the comment section at uh, the uh, website of uh, SIN. And once you go through that, then I'll take any other questions that might be popping up on the side. And I look at this, there's a good number of people that are listening, thank you for that, and there might be a handful of questions that come up in time. So I just want to begin with the questions that I did get and move through those. Before that though, of course, it wouldn't be a Instagram Live about sake if we didn't have a bottle of sake to, to taste. And so I'll pour myself a glass of sake. Um, I'm not entirely comfortable with speaking to hundreds of people and I can't see any of them, uh, but certainly this will help. So I'm going to enjoy some Nihaku Junmai Ginza from Shimane Prefecture and do it in a nice, big Kiki Joko. So whatever part of the world you are in, I hope you're drinking some sake, I hope you're comfortable, and Kampai. Excellent. Well, let's get going. Let's see what we can we begin to talk about. Again, I've got about a dozen questions that did come in over the last few days. And what I'll do is just move through those one at a time. Some of them are doubling up on others. Uh, a lot of them are pretty general. And uh, I'll try and cover as many of them as I can in as much depth as I can as well. Um, the first one came in from Eli Nigren, uh, who's lived in many places, including Hawaii and Japan. I'm not exactly sure where he is now. Uh, thanks for the, uh, the question, Eli. Um, and the question is, what impacts do you see and or predict that the coronavirus crisis having on the sake industry, both domestic and U.S. abroad. Several people ask questions like this, and I'm sure it's on everybody's mind, so I wanted to take this question first uh, and answer it as specifically as I could, but that'll be challenging, and then we'll go uh, from there. I mean, obviously, the effect is going to be huge. Um, but bear in mind, too, that Japan's shutdown actually started remarkably late, much later than the U.S. Uh, analyzing how... COVID-19 is progressing in Japan. It's kind of a challenging thing, but they started with a serious shutdown actually quite late. quite late, And it's actually just kicking in now. Uh, so I think that there's not a whole lot of data in and how things are affecting it. Right now, I believe it's in place until May 8th or so. So it's hard to see the effects yet. Uh, but certainly there. Uh, certainly they're there. They do have a shutdown of restaurants across the country. And just like the United States, a whole lot of alcohol is consumed at restaurants in Japan. And so that's going to hurt the industry quite a bit. Um, and just like it is in other countries, if those restaurants don't get back into business soon, a lot of them are going to suffer quite a bit. So certainly that effect is, is going to be there to be seen. I don't think sake breweries themselves are seeing numbers in their data yet that shows just how tough it's going to be. Uh, so everybody's saying, yeah, shipments are down, both domestic shipments and overseas shipments, but they're really not seeing the numbers yet because I believe... I believe the reason for that is that the shutdown kind of came kind of late uh, to Japan. So we'll see that soon. Exports too. There actually have been stories in the in the press about how exports have dropped off uh, pretty quickly. 
I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that not so many containers are moving, and many other businesses are shut down, businesses that would handle the actual movement of product coming in. Uh, certainly orders in the uh, outside of Japan, uh, I work most closely with the U.S., so I may sound a bit U.S.-centric, I apologize for that, but the um, orders from the U.S. industry too, I mean, basically there are not a whole lot of restaurants handling sake that are open anywhere in the United States. Uh, but again, we'll see the effects of those later. It's just that everybody uh, knows that they are coming for sure. Um, so what else can we say about this? Uh, obviously, exports have slowed to a trickle. And how will things last? When will this change? How long will this go on? Really, it's going to depend on the speed of the recovery. I mean, there's a lot of predictions about the speed of the, cover, of the recovery and what we expect. And how quickly it will recover depends on who you talk to. Um, and we all read and listen to the news, so we know the players involved and what their opinions are and what they may or may not say. Uh, in Japan, it's scheduled for May 8th that things start to reopen. Will that really open that more that, qu that quickly? I don't know. Uh, overseas as well. Some places are opening more quickly than others. The U.S., uh, within the U.S., some states are opening more quickly than others. But the speed of the recovery will actually have a lot to do with how bad uh, or not so bad the effect on the sake industry is. And again, we just have to wait and see how that unfolds. In my mind, even if people are able to and do want to go out and eat and drink, there's a couple of factors that are important, I think. Number one, the current importers can only handle with what they have in stock. They can only supply the distributors and restaurants with what they have in stock. Sure, they can order right away, but everybody and their brother is going to be ordering something. I'm, I'm worried, and I've got no grounds for saying this other than my own uh, surmisal, that there's going to be trouble getting containers just because everybody's going to want to get them out on the bandwagon, not just sake exporters. Um, and it's probably going to be tough to secure a container. Uh, we'll have to see how, how that unfolds, but I think that's going to be an issue uh, as well. Um, another thing is that when, I don't think this is limited to people overseas, but when the going gets tough, people drink in their comfort zone. I mean, they're not going to be experimenting with expensive products or products that they don't know so well. They're going to go relatively inexpensive and with things they're very comfortable with. Um, and so that may affect even if the economy rebounds very quickly, it might affect how much people actually return to sake or how quickly they return to sake. So those of us that are promoting it will have our work cut out for us, uh, but it's the least we can do for the industry. Um, and we'll do our best when it comes to doing that. Uh, moving on. Someone just told me, Harold just told me that the lockdown is currently scheduled to end on May, 8th, May 6th rather than May 8th. So hey, that's two more days we got to work with. Um, John Murakami of Denver, who I see once in a while on airplanes. Uh, how has COVID-19 affected the sake industry uh, due to the fact that many of the restaurants are closed? Will there be an overabundance of sake? And if so, will it be cutting down uh, production? Yeah, of course, there will be an overabundance of sake. But the way the sake industry works is they do their best. They look at curves, how much they're growing or how much they're contracting, and they adjust the amount they make every single year. Uh, they also take into account what they have in stock, in tanks, in the back room that hasn't shipped yet. So certainly, they will make adjustments. Will there be an overabundance? Yes, this year there will be, uh, probably. Uh, but the point is the brewers are very accustomed to dealing with things like this, and they'll do the best they can to make adjustments um, on how much they produce uh, the next year. This happens every year. Uh, I don't know. If we looked at you know, the fact that we're effectively... The economy shut down for two, three months, right? So if we say 25% or more, all of a sudden gone, yeah, they will have to, uh, to make adjustments to account for that. Uh, will it be that simple? Probably not. So they'll probably struggle uh, with that. But there's things they can do. For example, I mean, if you store sake properly, meaning at colder temperatures, um, if you adjust your timing of your pasteurization, because that affects pasteurization timing, affects uh, maturity as well, um, the storage temperature, the storage vessel, all those things, you can probably keep the sake in good condition longer than you normally would. So they may be able to work with what they have in stock and on hand uh, to make the stock that they have last without affecting quality. Again, they know a lot more about this than I do. They've worked with oversupply before, and we'll just have to see how that unfolds uh, as well. We've got all kinds of things coming in. How long can I store, Paul asks me. What temperature is storing at? The colder it is, the longer you can store. Um, look at the data on the bottle. Try and drink within 18 months of that. 
but it's certainly not that simple. If you've got a fruity, lively, aromatic daiginjo, you're going to want to get to it sooner. If you've got a heavy, rich, thick, big bone Yamaha, you probably got more time than that. But if you pressed me for a short answer, I'd say a year and a half after the date on the bottle. If you're not going to get to it in a couple of months, keep it cold. It will last a bit longer. Uh, another question that popped up, which makes me realize I'm not going to get through all the questions that I've written in front of me, but that's what this is all about. Uh, somebody asked about aged sake, and i got to scroll back down to see that again. What do you see as the trends in aged sake? Perhaps some of the old soul production could be aged. That's a question that'll take 45 minutes to answer. In terms of trends of aged sake, really, so little sake on the market is aged that it's hard to talk about trends in aged sake. Um, I do enjoy aged sake, but really, way, way, way less than 1% of sake is aged and then sold as an aged product. Could they start to age some of the sake that didn't get sold? They could do that, but then they have to market it differently and create a whole new product line. And if it isn't something that is already in line with or attuned to their normal style of sake, it might be challenging. Uh, but could it be done? Sure, it could be. Sure, it could be. Uh, that's another possibility. It really depends on how much they've got that needs to be moved and how accustomed and willing they are to mature their sake and go with it from there. Um, Arlene Lyons from Switzerland had a couple of questions too. Any moves to support sake breweries, distributors, etc. in Japan, other than the recent limited license for restaurants to sell sake for takeaway? Uh, before I answer that, Japan's government made a pretty cool move a couple of weeks ago. Uh, interestingly, if you're a restaurant in Japan, you don't need a license to sell sake within your restaurant. You don't need it. If you sell food, you can sell alcoholic beverages. Um, in, in your restaurant. You don't need a special license for that. However, with the Cantus, they can't do takeaway or takeout or they can't do retail. Uh, Japan's got some interesting alcoholic beverage distribution laws. They're much more reasonable uh, than they are in other countries. I once heard someone in Japan explain it thusly, and they said that in Japan, well, basically, if you look at the United States, it's almost as if they don't want you to drink. So they make it difficult and they tax you high on it. Um, but in Japan, they basically figured, well, you're going to drink anyway, so we might as well tax you. So the point is they kind of make it easy for you. The taxes are pretty much as harsh, but they kind of make it easy for people uh, to be able to buy and distribute and enjoy alcohol. And uh, that's one of the reasons you don't need a license when you're selling sake in a restaurant. However, they changed a rule, a law, actually. The Ministry of Taxation, who's in charge of all alcoholic beverages, as is the case in every country. And the law was that, yeah, you can now sell sake takeout from your restaurant. I believe it must be with food. I don't think they can just retail, but they got to do it with food. Uh, furthermore, you have to apply for this license by the end of June, and the license itself is only worth is only valid for 60 days. But one of the things the government has done to support the industry is say, okay, you guys are hurting, and <laughs> a lot of your product was going through restaurants, so now restaurants can sell uh, sake uh, as well. And that was a huge thing. It really, really spread across well, not that social media is everything, but every brewer I knew announced it on their social media. This is a huge thing. So that's one thing the government uh, has done. Uh, there's also government programs in Japan, and I'm not so well studied on them yet, like those that are taking place in the United States and presumably other countries as well, where the government's going to step up to the plate and support uh, small businesses or any business that is going to suffer uh, because of this temporary shutdown. Um, again, I don't know... I don't fully understand or grasp the details of that, but that is going to happen as well. Just how that will unfold and to what degree it will unfold and uh, by what timing will it unfold, that remains to be seen. I'm sure that a lot of that will depend on how COVID-19 progresses in Japan now. And as I mentioned, they're a bit late to the shutdown game, uh, and hopefully they won't need to stay in that game uh, too long. Um, on top of that, are there other things that I've heard or seen from the government? No, there aren't to my knowledge. However, the government is very well, uh, though very well aware, or the Ministry of Taxation is very well aware of the fragility of the sake industry. And they do a lot of things to support them in a lot of ways uh, that have nothing to do with the current crisis. Uh, some of those ways are effective, some are less so, but the government's aware of the fragility of the sake industry. And if for no other reason alcoholic beverage Revenues are important to the Ministry of Taxation. I'm sure they will step up to the plate in as many ways as they reasonably can to support the sake industry and the alcoholic beverage industry overall uh, from here uh, on out. Uh, the next question that she had was, uh, seeing how breweries are being both hit domestically and with export, is there anything particularly useful supporters inside or outside of Japan can do other than keep drinking? 
Um, there are those that are trying to move things online with tastings, education, lists of retailers. But any other advice for people that want to help? Uh, efforts we can do to support or things we can do ourselves on social media? Number one, yapari. Just drink more sake. <laughs> uh, get it to yourself in any way that you can uh, and just enjoy it. Nothing will go further than that. Uh, and it's not just the sales themselves that will help. It's the awareness of it. It's, it's the fact that you're keeping other businesses alive. Uh, other people will see how much you're enjoying it and go for it themselves. So really, that's the most important thing you can do. On top of that, everything will help. There is nothing that is too much of a pain in the ass to do to help the sake industry right now. Uh, any SNS thing you can do, uh, any stories you can post, any uh, parties online you can do, anything will help. Online efforts are really, really great. So definitely keep those up. Uh, and use whatever app you are most comfortable with, um, but keep sake in the forefront of your mind by any means necessary. That's the most important things that we think we can do. Next question is from Yoji Iwakura, who I believe is in Boston. At least he was last time I checked. Um, and Yoji asks me, he said, my question is, have you changed your mind about warm sake? Um, when I took your seminar, you didn't really appreciate warm sake, but you seem to now. Um, Yoji, if I convey that to you, I did not do a good job of conveying how fond I am of warm sake. Uh, in truth, in terms of promoting sake, we really need to keep it simple for people. And I think the way to do that, we need to get people the very next step. Uh, and I think it's easiest for people to approach slightly chilled sake and premium sake. Look at the flavors, look at the aromas. Um, and sake like that is typically most easily appreciated, most easily enjoyable when it's slightly chilled. Uh, and so I probably push that more than warm sake. However, I do recall in my seminar in sake professional course, I do have a whole lecture on warming, and I have several sake that are 10 times better warm than they are slightly chilled that I have people enjoy. So uh, I'm definitely way behind warm sake. Not only am I way behind it, I love it. Uh, have I lo always loved it? For a long time. Certainly at the beginning, when I got to Japan in 1988, uh, for several years I was a ginjo snob. That's all I drank was ginjo. I actually liked namazake back then, but that's another discussion. Uh, and I drank pretty much everything chilled. I wasn't that interested in warm sake. But you spend time in the industry, you drink a lot, though not necessarily at one sitting. You <laughs> work through a lot of sake, and you come to appreciate the true joys of warm sake. And I cannot tell you how incredibly fond I am of warm sake. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. But uh, So yeah, I've always loved it. Uh, I tend to promote it carefully because I want people to fall in love with sake right away, and I still think the easiest way to do that is slightly aromatic ginjo or sake that's easily enjoyed um, at white wine temperatures. So I start to focus on that more, I think, but I've always loved warm sake, and I continue to love it now. Uh, further, he goes on and says, uh, what does he say? Is it because breweries started to make some sake that's meant to be warm or some sake that's also going to be at warmer temperatures? I think that when the Ginjo boom hit in the, late, in the 1980s, the late 80s, until the aughts, until the year 2000 or so, there was very little sake earmarked for warming in the market. Sure, there was plenty of it, but not like what came after that. I think around 2000 or so, I think a lot of people in the industry and those that aren't necessarily making sake but enjoy it a lot are like, whoa, uh, you know, we kind of lost track of the roots of all this great stuff. And so you started to see almost a renaissance, a revival in warm sake. And the toys, the accoutrements came out, and all kinds of sake earmarked for warming, and brewers telling you on the back label uh, what temperature you want to enjoy your sake at. A lot of it was warmed. So you started to see a revival within the industry, and not just the producers, but those that are enjoying sake uh, in Japan as well. Um, and so I don't think there's been, yeah, I guess there has maybe in the last 20 years, an increase in the number of sake on the market that are earmarked for warming. And certainly that makes it more visible, uh, and that's a great thing too. And the last thing he points out that I think is really great is that uh, he says, I'm a supporter for um, sake to be consumed chilled and warm, slightly old sake. Uh, in other words, as a restaurateur, um, Yoji is conveying that if stuff gets a little bit longer in the tooth than you might want it, try it warmed. And I agree with that 100%. Slightly aged sake is really, really suited to warming. To me, aged three to five years, deliberately or inadvertently, you got a much more potential for enjoying that gently warmed. Um, I would like to see, it's actually a dream I have if I had another 48 hours every day, <laughs> to get around the United States and promote warm sake by whatever means necessary. But by all means, slightly mature sake, 
uh, that might not taste the way the brewer originally intended you to enjoy it is really, really enjoyable warm. So if you're interested in getting into warm sake, you could start there. If you've got something laying around a bit longer than it should have, by all means, try it. Um, by the way, tonight, uh, I'm enjoying Rihaku, and this is something that I've been saving for several years. It's actually four years old, um, and it's got some color to it. And again, just as I was talking about, it's extremely enjoyable, gently warmed. Uh, I do this deliberately at my own risk. Kids don't try this at home. But if you do, you might have some really enjoyable sake very, uh, that's there for warming. So check that out uh, if you have a chance to do that. But again, when looking at warm sake versus chilled sake, I think it's important to give people a clear next step. If they're just getting into sake and you say, and I think there are those in the Japanese sake industry, and in particular in the government there, that will, that will do this. And they'll say, the good thing about sake is you can enjoy it warm, room temperature, or cold. Um, and you don't have to drink ginjo, you can drink jinmai or honjos or all these types, and it'll go with any food in the world. And then people that are just getting into sake, it's like, okay, what do I do next? And they don't have the next step, so they go back to a glass of wine because it's more familiar. Uh, so I think it's very important to give people a very clear next step, which is why I tend to let myself promote chilled sake a little bit more uh, than warm sake, but trust me when I tell you, uh, I really, really enjoy uh, warm sake for sure. And I'm trying to move on from here. Uh, again, I'll just jump on this here. Someone asked me, Nancy Matsumoto, I'll give a shout out to her, what's my opinion of the use of Coravin preservation system to keep a bottle of sake fresher longer? The point being removing oxygen? Yeah, that'll work. That will work. Uh, so it's, it's a fine system. It will work. However, there's two issues related to that. Um, number one, sake is much more forgiving than a bottle of wine. I mean, sake will oxidize. But any bottle of sake is going to last a week. I really do believe that. And those that are sturdier with not a whole lot of hoity-toity, fruity ginjo aromas will last several weeks without a problem. So will that system work? Yes. Uh, is it as necessary as it might be for a bottle of wine? I don't think so. So if you've got it, yeah, great, use it. It will work. But sake is a bit more forgiving than wine when it comes to oxidation. Uh, the other problem with that is I don't have a problem with bottles of sake sitting around open. They don't usually do that in my house, so I don't need to worry about that uh, particular concern. But the short answer to the question, Nancy, is that uh, that will work. Um, someone named Rick, and I didn't get Rick's last name, what are my opinion of sake brewed outside of Japan? And again, this is <laughs> enough fodder for a whole nother Instagram Live, uh, but I'll do my best to address it in a concise way. Um, first and foremost, I really, really want to encourage brewers outside of Japan. Absolutely. For many reasons. Uh, one, the more familiar people become with sake all over the world, uh, the more sake in general is going to grow as a category, and we do need that. Uh, number two, it's such a ballsy, it's such a courageous artistic endeavor. I really want to encourage people trying, encourage people trying to make sake overseas. Interestingly, the sake industry in Japan is very supportive of people making sake overseas as well. Uh, I don't, I've never heard any brewer or person in the government related to sake say anything that they were threatened by it at all. Um, on the contrary, you see a lot of brewers really, really encouraging it uh, overseas. And the biggest reason that they do, I believe, is actually passion. Not that like, okay, if their stuff becomes more familiar overseas, my stuff will sell better. More like, wow, great, they're actually trying to make this. Let's encourage them. Uh, so I really do want to encourage them. A lot of it is extremely enjoyable, without a doubt. Uh, is it as good as Japanese-made sake? Well, how does one define as good as? And I know I'm evading that question, uh, but I will say this. If we were to put it up in blind tastings in Japan against Japanese sake, would it do well? Probably not so well. However, nobody drinks sake like that. You've got a bottle of something that you know who made it, you know what went into it, you're enjoying with good friends, with food, which changes the whole equation, and there's a lot of sake made overseas that's extremely enjoyable, and it just keeps getting better. Um, I was on a conversation on Zoom two days ago, I believe, with a group of the North American sake breweries, um, and uh, they're all doing a great job. And there's actually between, I believe the number was about 26 of them right now. Not all of them are 100% active, but they're getting into it. Uh, and I definitely want to encourage them all. A lot of them are making really, really good sake, uh, and it's going to continue to get better. In terms of the hurdles that brewers overseas have, there's a number of them. One is rice, obviously. However, I don't think that's the biggest hurdle to have. In other words, a lot of really good sake is made within Japan using table rice. You don't need the best Yamadanishiki from Tojo and Hyogo Prefecture to make decent sake. A decent rice will do uh, just fine. 
Um, in fact, I just re read a quote, I can't remember what it is in Japanese, but basically, when the rice is mediocre, we actually end up making better sake. And the reason is, if the rice is mediocre, the brewers will pay so much more attention to every single step, and they're able to make better sake than they normally would, uh, because of the fact that it was precisely mediocre rice. Uh, if you look at that, overseas, if we get rice that isn't as good as rice in Japan, you can still do a great job with it. So rice is one hurdle, but it's probably not the biggest one. I think equipment might be. Uh, if you look in Japan, they've got great tools, <laughs> great equipment. Uh, most of the brewers in Japan, there's 1,200 active now, most of them, if not 90% of them, 99% of them, are of a scale where you can justify buying an expensive piece of equipment. Uh, a lot of the breweries outside of Japan are not quite to the scale where they can justify that yet. And a lot of them are using really good equipment. Uh, but there's probably a lot of equipment where they could make tweaks and adjustments that would make their sake even better. Um, and last, I think, is experience. Just, you know, it took Japan 2,000 years to get there. <laughs> uh, we'll move a lot faster overseas, right? You've got so much more to, to base your decisions on, to get your experience from. I mean, you can work in a brewery in Japan for a while. You can get books and have them translated. There's so much more access to brewing technology um, that it's not going to take too long. But um, experience in the brewing room, in the brewing process, will certainly help. So I think those are the three things that are going to make uh, sake brewed overseas continue to get better and better and better. And as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of it is wonderful, and I so badly, so much want to encourage the sake brewing industry uh, outside uh, of Japan uh, as well. Another question from uh, Miyuki Yoshida, who's in the Great Northwest. With the Tokyo Olympics delayed one year in 2021, and brewers strategize, brewers strategizing new sake marketing plans, or is it business as usual? It's definitely not business as usual. I mean, Japan's been turned upside down right now. Certainly they've got COVID-19 itself to deal with. But the Olympics were kicked down a year. I mean, they've been gearing up for this for years, literally, four years. Um, and now it just unavoidably has been kicked out a year, if not further. And nobody knows what's going to I'm not going to surmise anything more beyond that. But there was so much activity from brands and special shops that were geared towards making sake appealing or opening sake up or uh, allowing all the innumerable amount of people that are going to come to Japan to enjoy the Olympics to learn about and enjoy sake as well. Pop-up shops of all uh, sizes. I mean, the government was doing stuff. The brewer at the, uh, the brewing um, organizations of Japan were various brewers were, uh, and all that has been put on hold. Um, so we just have to see how this all shakes out. Will the Olympics get kicked out another year or canceled entirely? I don't think anyone can make any decisions until that happens. Um, a lot of the planning was centered around expensive real estate, right? So you rent out a small lot and you have a pop-up bar. Are you going to be able to pay the rent on that for another year? Uh, I apologize if I come up as too precise or too detailed about some of the troubles, but there's a million little things that are going to have to be factored in. Uh, and I think the short answer to this is everybody's going to have to plan again from scratch, strategize with new marketing plans, products, all those things. And I don't think anybody's going to be able to do that much on that at all until uh, Japan reopens and until the future of the Olympics uh, are set. And that, who knows when that's actually going to happen. Uh, the next question from Richard in Albany, California. Uh, which will likely be a greater expansion of sake popularity in the United States in the coming years? High-end quality sakes, which we appreciate and discuss like fine chardonnays and cabernets, or lower-end sakes used in popular mixed drinks along with gimmicky sparkling and fruit-flavored sakes to try to appeal to the millennial bar set. I think if you look at any alcoholic beverage in any country in almost any era, the majority of sales and revenue will come from the inexpensive line. Certainly you'll always have people talking about uh, fine Chardonnays and Cabernets and discussing them and their merits and things like that. But most of the wine consumed in the United States is going to be relatively expensive. Um, the same with beer. We all love our craft beer. And admittedly, as the, although that sector is growing, most people are drinking much less expensive beer. And the same goes for sake. If you look at the sake consumed in Japan, it's uh, between, it's a, it depends on whether you, where you put the Honjozo category, but 60 to 70% is inexpensive sake. Um, and so the majority of the market is inexpensive. If you look at what's important in the United States, again, and I apologize for using the United States as a lone example here, but there's several large sake producers in the United States, and a lot of them are perfectly good, perfectly enjoyable sake. But the 
premium, more expensive stuff coming from Japan is a much smaller part of the market. And I think as sake continues to grow, that ratio will be maintained. In other words, you're always going to have a need for the inexpensive stuff, mixers, and that should grow too. But you'll also have the demand growing for more premium, lively, focused, uh, more expensive uh, stuff that people can appreciate and discuss to no end. So I think that the ratio of inexpensive sake to expensive sake will stay more or less the same as sake continues to grow in popularity uh, in, in the United States and other countries um, as well. Um, the next question, before I go off on one that I want to actually yak about myself, uh, Will Jarvis says, Hi John, as a Brit, I'm wondering what your views your view is on the British sake scene and what you think it might be missing. It appears to be growing, but is there an element or injection that would improve our understanding and attitude toward it? That's a challenging question for a number of reasons. Number one, I don't spend too much time in the European market, so I don't know the details of what's happening there. What is clear to me is there are a lot of people, not just in the UK, but all over Europe, that are working really hard, with great success, and making sake popular in their various countries. Uh, I think there's two things that are holding Europe back a little bit. And one of them is just the size of the market. I mean, the United States is a huge market, and it's basically one big market. Whereas I think every country in uh, the EU is a little bit different. Even legally, if they can ship sake back and forth, they're not necessarily cooperating on an EU-wide basis. And so each market is a little bit smaller, and the way they want to market in their target markets, I think, will vary uh, in size as well. So that's a one challenge. The other is... You know, it's it's wine's homeland. I mean, they've been drinking really good wine and good beer and good spirits there that are brewed locally for a thousand years. And so it's really, really, that's dug in deep. The United States doesn't even have a long history as a country. And it's the kind of country that basically accepts anything. Yeah, we'll drink that. That's cool. Which is good if you're trying to introduce a new, introduce a new product uh, and develop a market. Uh, so I think the only problems that Europe has really are just distribution in terms of size of the various markets uh, and the fact that it's just the homeland for a lot of other products that are extremely enjoyable and have not waned in their popularity. Uh, but things are growing, not at a blazing pace, but things are growing in the UK as well. Uh, in fact, in all of Europe, so I want to encourage that. Uh, and I don't think there's one little thing that if they changed it, everything would change. Probably not uh, going to happen. So they just have to keep uh, plugging on and making what progress uh, they are. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, and after that I could look at some of the questions that have actually uh, come in. Um, someone has asked me, Jeff Berenberg, he has asked me, he says, John, do you think if more could utilize geometric rice polishing geared to the shape of the shimpaku, uh, like henpei and genpei uh, milling, will that affect the formal grading system in the future? This is a really interesting question. In order to answer that, I need to talk about an article that was just in the most recent issue of Sake Industry News. And that is available free for everybody. We did that last issue and this issue, and that will not continue forever. Uh, so by all means, if you're interested, go to Sake Industry News and download that or just read it online. Um, but uh, I wrote about new, semi-new, methods of rice milling. Um, and if you look at the history of rice milling, I mean, rice is always milled, right? You have brown rice, genmai, and even people that eat that, you mill out the other outer 8%. Uh, it ends up tasting a lot better. They've been doing that for centuries and centuries in Japan. Uh, and they used to do that using grinding stones and water wheels. And a company in Hiroshima called Satake invented the first automated rice milling machine in the late 1800s. Um, then when the demand came to mill the rice further than your typical 8%, they did things like harder milling stones and, and modified a bunch of stuff. And they came up with the first sake rice milling machines in the early 1900s. I believe in the 30s. Um, and Satake is by far, well, they invented rice milling machines, and they're by far the largest producer of rice milling machines in the, uh, in the industry right now. But when you mill rice using one of the, any machine, any rice milling machine, uh, you've got a big conical hopper that drops the rice down into basically an hourglass-shaped grinding stone that spins. And as the rice goes down, a little bit gets nicked off, and it goes around and around and around and around for hours and hours and hours. And every time it does, a little bit more gets nicked off. So what happens is you take a grain of rice, it's typically oblong, right? It's not round, it's oblong. And the white starch center, which is called the shinpaku, is oblong as well inside that grain of rice. Remember that sake rice, as opposed to eating rice, has a much more clearly defined shinpaku. In other words, you have much more starch in the center, 
and much more of the fat and protein of the rice are on the outside. That's why milling sake rice makes much more sense than milling table rice. But in any event, when you use an automatic milling machine to do it, every time it goes around, a little bit gets nicked off, but it gets nicked off kind of haphazardly. So in other words, you get this oblong piece of rice, grain of rice, and after going around for hours and hours and hours and hours, it ends up being rounded, right? So when you look at a grain of rice, you've got more fat around the midsection and less fat around the top and bottom. But if you mill so that it gets rounder and rounder and rounder, you're actually leaving more fat around the outside than you are at the top at the bottom. Um, and so you'll take an oblong piece of rice, and if you look at rice samples, and I'm sure many people listening today have seen rice milling samples, you'll see that they're actually round, they're like pearls. Um, and that's because the oblong rice grains will get milled down to be very round. Uh, a couple of decades ago, somewhere between 20 and 30 years ago, a researcher that was a taster for the government said, you know, if we could tweak this milling process to keep the grains of rice such that you mill more around the outside than, around the top, than at the top and bottom, we could actually take off more fat where there is more fat. Uh, and they developed that process. And that's called henpe semai, um, uh, which is flat rice milling. This was embraced by the producer uh, called Daishichi, Daishichi Shuzo in Fukushima Prefecture. Um, and Daishichi really, really made the most, or quite utilized quite a bit, this henpei semai. However, they tweaked it a bit more to take it beyond that, and they have what they call cho henpei semai, which is super flat. And I believe that they own the rights to that term. But in any event, henpei semai is milling the rice in such a way that you take more fat more around the outside than the top and the bottom. How do they do that? They just tweak the machine. They jury-rig it. In other words, they let less rice fall down, um, and they do it in such a way so the rice isn't bumping into each other, so it actually maintains its vertical orientation as it drops down. And then every time it hits a grinding stone, more gets nicked around the side than the top or the bottom. Um, so henpei semai is a very good way to do it. You can actually move more fat or protein with less milling. So in other words, if you were to look at a semai boy of 60%, and if it was done by henpei semai, you'll have a lower ratio of fat than if you were to do it by regular semai. So that begs the question, well, why doesn't everybody do henpei? Because it's a pain in the butt. It's a real hassle. Uh, it takes more time, it takes more energy, it takes more effort, and it takes more skill. Uh, so most people are like, okay, we mill it a bit further, we get, you know, more of the fat away, even if it's a lower ratio of it, and we know what we're dealing with. It's the devil we know. So really, although henpei semai is growing in popularity, uh, the, um, uh, it's still a, a, minor, a minor part of it. So this was, any machine will do it if you know how to tweak the machine. So satake the big company, was kind of pretty much not as active in the industry as another producer of rice milling machines called Shin Nakano. Uh, and Shin Nakano did a great job of adding benefits like research, practical scientific research that all the brewers could use on how to mill, how to store, uh, things like that. Things that had defied common sense in the sake industry for decades. Um, and so Shin Nakano did a really good job of marketing themselves to the craft brewing sector of the industry in Japan. Uh, and Satake is still the leader by far no matter how you slice it. Well, very recently, within a, two years ago or so, well, all right, I have no idea how long it took them to develop the machines, but within the past half a year, Satake came out with a machine that will do regular semai, but also do henpei semai. Uh, and you don't need to do anything but flip a switch, presumably. You don't have to jury-rig things, and it does it faster, with less energy, uh, it cools the rice as it does it, so it's great. But then they also did something else. They created their own version of this, um, and uh, what they did is, and it's somewhere between henpei semai and regular semai. Um, and uh, as much as I work with, it's called genpei, genkei, not genpei, genkei. So genkei semai is somewhere between regular semai and super flat, and, and henpei semai. And basically, it's not quite as flat. It's a little bit fuller. It leaves a little bit more fat on it than if you were to do a full henpei. Um, I'm not trying to get too bogged down in details here, but it's a third way to mill the rice. Uh, and so that's just started. Uh, Satake is doing a good job of working with a handful of brewers, one of which is Hukucho in Hiroshima Prefecture, where she made, uh, the toji is the president, Ms. Mihu Imada, and she made two sake exactly the same. The only difference is one is henpei and the other is genkei semai. Um, and you can buy them if you're in Japan from her and taste them out and see them yourselves. Uh, I did taste them myself. I did write, them up, write that up. I'll let you check out Sake Industry News to see what the differences were, in my opinion. Um, however, uh, Jeff's question was, will they change the laws 
now that we have Henpei and Genkei Semai. In other words, Ginjo, you need to mill it down to 60%, Dai Ginjo to 50%, Honjo's at a 70 Well, they changed these because now you don't have to mill so far and you can still away, take away more fat and protein. And the answer to that question is I'm very sure that they will not change that. Um, there's a number of reasons I believe that. Number one, those numbers are just minimums, right? So you can mill, mill to 60% for, for Ginjo. You have to mill it to 60% for at the ginjo and jimai ginjo. But you can mill it to 50, 40, you can do whatever you want and still call it a ginjo. So because those numbers are minimums, there really would be no advantage or no meaning to redefine the numbers at, let's say, a higher semi buai, uh, because you can take it to any degree you want to beyond that. So the numbers are just a minimum. So changing that minimum because you can remove more fat and protein if you mill it a bit differently probably is certainly not probably certainly, is certainly not enough impetus for the government to change these laws which have been in place since 1988. Uh, could I be wrong? Yeah, it happens all the time. But uh, I don't think that they will. The other thing, and this is important, I think, is that there's far too much importance placed on the number that the Semaibuai is. Uh, people are like, what's the Semaibuai? Right? And, like, uh, and, and of course, always ask, always pay attention. But that is really just one small factor of everything that goes into a sake. If you just look at that number and make a decision on what you want to drink based on that, you're ripping yourself off of so much information. Um, I'm not saying seek the yeast. I'm not saying seek the kasubuai. I'm not saying seek the number of days was fermented. No, just taste it. You'll know everything you need to know. But the same my boy alone, that number alone, how much the rice was milled alone, isn't going to give you so much information. However, within the sake brewing in Japan, there's actually kind of an, a, a, a problem right now where a lot of breweries are having trouble trying to sell sake at the price at which they think it's a fair sale. Because purchasers, buyers, be they restaurateurs, be they distributors, be they retailers, will make a decision based on the same my boy. They'll say, all right, I'm not going to give you more than 2,500 yen a bottle if the same my boy is 55%. I mean, if you want 2,500, milk down to 50, then talk to me. Or things like that. In other words, they look at the number and they'll say, I'm not paying more than this based on that number. Uh, and it's certainly not fair by any stretch of the imagination. I have heard many brewers complain that they would much prefer to sell their sake, for example, 2,800 yen for a 1.8-liter a bottle, but nobody else is, nobody's paying more than 2,500 for that same ibuai. Um, and so this is a problem. And the truth is that it really is not as important as a million other things in terms of how good the sake is going to be or what it's going to taste like. So we have seen a movement towards brewers not telling you what the same ibuai is. In other words, they don't put it on the bottle. If the brewers don't put it on the bottle, then they can't call it a grade. In other words, if you want to call a sake tokuteme shosho, a honjozo or a junmai, or one of the four grades of, of, of ginjo, you must put the same boy on the bottle. If you don't want to put it on there, you're not allowed to call it. By default, any bottle of sake that does not have the same boy put on there is a futsushu. And that's fine. But the point is you're getting not a lot. I would say less than half a dozen right now. There's probably more but uh, not a whole lot of brewers that are just saying, look, I'm not going to tell you what the same my boy is because I want you to pay attention to what it tastes like. That allows them to sell the product for a price higher, presumably, than they might normally be able to command if they were to put the same my boy on there. So, working my way backwards out of that rabbit hole, uh, will they change the laws in the same my boy to accommodate the fact that you can get more fat off by milling it in one of these new ways? I doubt that they will for several reasons, one of which I think the industry is slowly trying to move a bit away from over-dependence on the Semaibuai number. It might have been the fastest 45 minutes I have ever passed uh, in my life. Um, there are a few other questions here. I would like to see if I could answer a couple more before we wrap that up. And uh, I'm seeing a lot of comments, but not a whole lot of questions there. Uh, isn't Daishichi also the one known renowned for the large Yamahai Kimoto input? Actually, not Yamahai, just Kimoto. Uh, that's the other thing that Daishichi has done. They, <laughs> I visited him a couple of times, and when I visited him the first time, which is probably, uh, I don't know, boarding 20 years ago, they brewed 100 tanks of sake that year. 96 were Kimoto. They say they did the non-kimoto, which was Sokujo and not a Yamahai, just so they didn't forget how to do it. Uh, so yeah, they've dedicated themselves, committed themselves to the kimoto method uh, for many, many years. Uh, and that's their other shtick, Henpei Semai and kimoto.
Um, another question from Big King PVD. Uh, are 1.8 bottles popular in Japan for home consumption? No, they're waning in popularity for home consumption. Until the late 80s, 1.8s were by far uh, much more common. And they slowly started to switch to 720s because people got refrigerators. And, and Ginjo was twice the price, so the price points would drop in half. Uh, and I would say that I really don't know the ratio of 720s to 1.8s right now, but without a doubt, 1.8s are on the decline. Um, I actually prefer 1.8s because I think they taste better, but it's probably my imagination. <laughs> it's probably some romantic streak inside of me that wants to think that 1.8s taste better. Uh, but no, I don't think uh, 1.8s are that common for home consumption, unless you drink as much as I do, in which case, yeah, uh, you do have them around. Ah, uh, next question. John, any trends from judging this year? Oh, I hesitate to answer this question because it's going to be in the next sake industry news. So I'll make you guys a deal. If you're not subscribed, subscribe, and then I'll tell you what I, I learned. Um, so it appears that because of COVID, typically, and I've judged in many contests in Japan, including the nationals, you use a glass like this, a, a standard 1.8 kikijoko. Um, in the nationals, they ask, actually use an amber glass because they want to hide color. They want you to depend on your nose and your palate only. Um, but if you have 20 judges judging, it could be anywhere from 10 to 50, everybody drinks from the same glass. And it's fine. It's alcohol. Most stuff should be killed. Uh, we're all working. <laughs> you know, and you, you just you get used to it. You don't pay any attention to it. Well, obviously, with COVID running around, you're not going to have a, a sake tasting event where everybody's tasting from the same glass. It obviously is not appropriate, not the way to do things. So based on the input that I've received uh, everywhere, is now doing it a different way. The different ways are everybody pours into their own small glass or use an eyedropper to pour it into your glass. The problem is you don't have nearly as much surface area or room on top for aromas to arise into your palate. So one judge in particular uh, has mentioned in his newsletter that uh, sakes with a really prominent aroma and a bold sweetness aren't doing as well as they normally would. Instead of that, you're getting sake that have a really, really delicate and fine balance between the aromas and the flavors once you taste it. And those sakes are starting to actually show better this year. So there probably will be effect, will be effect uh, basically from COVID on how sake is judged this year or the results of those judging. And that's really more of a fact that people can't drink from big glasses anymore. How will this affect things in the future? Nobody knows yet. We just have to see if this continues, uh, how COVID runs, and whether or not the industry will return to people drinking from communal glasses uh, in the future. Those would be the trends that I have seen uh, over the last year. There was one or two things, were one or two things that I wanted to uh, talk about. Um, in the end, uh, before I wrap this up, there's just a couple of things that I would like to add. I just wanted to give people a snapshot of the industry in Japan. Uh, how is it growing? How is it not growing? How is it contracting? And in truth, it's an industry that's been contracting since like 1973, and it's pretty steady uh, of, a, of a contraction. Why that is, is definitely a, a conversation for another night, and that could go for a long time um, as well. But if you were to look at the industry in the quickest snapshot that we could take, uh, basically, again, 60 to 65% of the market is futsushu, non-premium sake. A lot of it is extremely enjoyable, but isn't quite classified as premium. Uh, and that's contracting pretty quickly. I would say several percent a year. Uh, the rest of it, the premium part, which is the four types of ginjo, dai ginjo, jumai, dai ginjo, ginjo, jumai, ginjo, and then tokubitsu, honjozo, tokubitsu, jumai, and jumaishu, and, uh, and honjozo, I'm sorry, and jumaishu. Those are all growing at several percent a year. So you've got basically the top 30 to 35% of the market growing at several percent a year, and the bottom 60 to 65% of the market contracting at several percent a year. If you look at that, we do have a premiumization, premiumization of the market. However, the overall numbers are going down because you've got two-thirds of the market contracting and one-third growing at about the same pace. Um, no one knows where this is going to continue, but sake does seem to be growing uh, in popularity. Um, exports have been growing for 20 years. Um, this past year, they were three times what they were 10 years ago. Uh, the United States is the biggest importer, both in terms of volume and in terms of uh, monetary value, taking 25 to 30% of all exports. Um, things will continue to change. Things will continue to change. To me, 
the biggest drag about all this is Honjozo, which is barely into the premium sake realm, uh, but is premium. And that's just taking a huge hit. Uh, because people are like, well, if I'm going to drink cheaper sake, I might as well drink really cheap sake. If I'm going to drink premium for a few more yen or a few more whatever your currency is, uh, I can drink Ginjo. So Honjo is taking a bad hit now, and that will probably continue to be uh, the way it progresses. However, I do believe Jinmaishu and the four types of uh, Ginjo will continue to grow, so we'll probably see the current trend continue for a little while. Uh, with that, I would like to wrap it up for tonight. This was the first of what I hope will be many, or at least several, and somewhat regular uh, Instagram Lives for Sake Industry News. Again, if you're not a subscriber of Sake Industry News, if you'll allow me 10 seconds of shameless self-promotion, uh, we come out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. We cover a handful of stories from the sake industry within Japan, and I usually write one or two slightly advanced technical stories uh, as well. Um, the whole point is to have people become more familiar with the sake industry in Japan. I think those that sell wine over the United, uh, all over the world or other distilled beverages from other countries, they know the industry in the country from which that beverage comes very well. They know who the main producers are. They know the idiosyncrasies of the industry. I don't think we have that with the sake world yet. So I really want the world to become more familiar with the sake brewing industry, uh, first of all in Japan, and all the sake producers outside of Japan as well. And that's what Sake Industry News is trying to accomplish. So by all means, check it out. Uh, you can check out the first two issues for free before you commit. Uh, but I do hope that if you're not subscribed, you'll get on that soon. Uh, and I do look forward to chatting with, every some, with everybody again sometime in the near future. Uh, at least stay tuned to the Instagram account, and we will let you know when the next, one's, next one comes out. For those of you for whom it is as late as it is for me, have a nice evening. For everybody else, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, finally, come by. And I'm going to end this right there as peacefully as I can. Good night, everybody.